You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Some have said that it is one of the most outstanding books ever written in the English language. The title, the author, Pilgrim's Progress by Paul Bunyan. Have you read it? If not, let me tell you, it is a must read. Uh, The book tells a story about a particular pilgrim. He's called Christian and his struggle with faith. In his struggle, he engages in an incredible journey. Uh, And on that journey, he meets various obstacles or tests all along the way that develop his faith. One such obstacle is called the slow of despondency. Now what, or despond if you like. The slow of despond is this thick, sticky, slimy, um, mud hole full of filth that bogs him down, bogs the Christian down and threatens to swallow up the Christian. The person who helps the Christian escape or helps Christian escape, through that slough of despond, is where a Christian often enters into their conversion. Now, that is when you help someone out of that, they are often converted. It's a place where fears and doubts and apprehensions band together and settle the mind and the heart. It's a place that most Christians have felt at some time. Have you? Despondency is a cruel experience. Perhaps uh, there are feelings of isolation. That is fairly common, it marks it out. You feel alone, you feel under threat, you feel as though the world is dark, your shoulders hunch, your feelings sag, your faith in friends, sometimes even your faith in God dissolves. You feel as though there's no victory. You long for company and you long for a deliverer, a friend, a hero. I wonder if you've been there. I have. And the despair you feel can be crippling to faith. Those of you who have found yourself despondent or even depressed know what I'm talking about. And I know you'll be here in this room today. But how's that relevant to our passage for today? What's it got to do with this? Well, as I prepared, you know what? I sense that despondency is where the nation of Israel is at this particular point in its history. Just remember where we've come from. They are the chosen special people of God. They are the ones God has spectacularly rescued from Egypt. They are the ones amongst whom he performed enormous, great miracles. But things have not been going so well for them recently. In the book of Samuel, we've seen them lose the Ark of the Covenant in battle. And even when the Philistines returned it, God burst out in judgment upon them. What's more, they're surrounded by strong enemies. Their leadership is ageing. An ageing priest called Samuel. 
not a warrior. He's not a king. So I, I think the worries of the nation can be summarized very well in the middle of the passage we're looking at today. So I'd like you to look at them with me. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. And listen as we look at it. Nahash the Ammonite came up and laid siege against Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite replied, Oh, I'll make one with you on this condition. I will gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate all Israel. Don't do anything to us for for seven days, the elders of Jabesh said to him, and let us send messengers throughout Israel, throughout the territory of Israel, and if if one saves us, then uh, if no one saves us, well, then we'll surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and told the terms to all the people, all wept aloud. Can you hear and see the mood of this passage? It's phenomenal. They have powerful enemies. They feel helpless. They call for help. And all that they can do when faced with the call of help is to weep and wail. Can you hear this? These are people at a very low ebb in life and in Israel. And today we're going to find out how God provides for them. How he responds to their deep, deep despondency. But we've got a bit ahead of ourselves at this point, so let's backtrack a little bit and uh, let's let's, uh, do that now. So I want you to start at the beginning. I'm going to run very uh, quickly through the passage. Hang on in there, keep your eyes on the text. Uh, let's refresh our memories. In 1 Samuel 8, do you remember what happened? We saw the people of God ask God for a king. We heard God indicate he would grant their request. In 1 Samuel 9, we saw God bring the first candidate, Saul, to Samuel. Um, in 1 Samuel 10, verses 10 to 16, we see Saul receive some signs of God's choice. Let's see what happens now. Look at verse 17 here. We're told that Samuel summons the people of Israel to the Lord. Then Samuel speaks to them and it looks like an oracle of doom. However, he never announces the doom. However, he does set the context. Can you see it there? Verse 18, God was Israel's deliverer from Egypt. But in asking for a king, Israel is actually rejecting God and his leadership. Verse 19. And so God calls upon them to present themselves To him, verse 19. I think that the implication is that God is about to give them a king they they had gone home without at the end of chapter 8. I think that's what's going on. And things now move fairly quickly. Can you see it there? Lots are drawn, verse 20. The tribe of Benjamin is chosen, 21. Then the clan of Saul is chosen. And then finally Saul himself is chosen, verse 21. However, When you look around, he's gone missing in action. So God reveals that he's hiding in the baggage. Verse 22, it's not a a promising sign for a king, is it really? He's hiding in the baggage. Anyway, he's found, verse 23, and we're told that he is impressive in size. He He is very tall. I covet his tallness, verse 23. In verse 24... God's prophet announces that he's the chosen one. 
And the people respond with shouts, Long live the king! Verse 25. And Samuel tells the people about the rights of kingship. My guess is that Samuel outlined some of the regulations that were back there in in Deuteronomy 17. Then he places these things before the Lord in verse 25. And then the people are dismissed, verse 25 again. Saul himself goes home, verse 26. This has all been pretty quick, hasn't it? You know, bang, 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 bang. Now, verse 26 tells us that he's accompanied... Oh, sorry, verse 9 had told us that God had changed his heart. And verse 26 tells us that he's accompanied by a group of warriors whose hearts God had touched. Can you see what's going on? Here is God's man, surrounded by godly warriors whose hearts God has touched. Here is God's man. However, it's not all smooth sailing, is it? Look at it. Look at verse 27. Some worthless or and or wicked men see what's going on. They're sceptical. And so they say, they despise him. They say, can this man save us? Can this man save us? And they do not bring a gift, verse 27. However, there's more in this chapter. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 to 15, or in the next chapter. Nahash the Ammonite, he comes besieging Jabesh-Gilead, a particular town within Israel. And the men of Jabesh are in danger of losing an eye each. But Nahash has a bigger goal in mind. You see, he's not just after the eyes of the men of Israel, and he looks, um, but rather, the end of verse 2 tells us that his goal is to bring disgrace on all of Israel. And it looks as though, in their despondency, Israel is compliant. They're going to cave in. However, before we move on, I want you to notice a couple of things here. They're intriguing to notice. First, I want you to notice which eye Nahash wants cut out. Do you see it there? It's, it's the right eye. The right eye. Now, traditionally ancient Israelite soldiers held their shields um, over their left eyes. So not only will you be gouging out the eye and bringing humiliation, you will be weakening the enemy in battle by the eye that has been cut out. It will weaken the army. Second, I want you to notice what the elders say. Can you see it there? They say that they want seven days to send messengers throughout all of Israel. Nahash is in a very, very strong position at this point, isn't he? He is magnanimous. He expects no answer. But now look at verse 4. Notice that it's not just one messenger that comes to Jabesh of Saul, sorry, to Gibeah of Saul. It is messengers in the plural. In other words, I think that all the messengers have not dispersed throughout Israel. I think all the messengers head off to Jabesh, to Gibeah, Saul's hometown. I think that's where they're going. They think that's the man. In other words, the men of Jabesh know the state of Israel. They know there's only one hope. Their only hope is this newly appointed king. And so they send every messenger to him. It's loaded. Okay? And uh, he'll know what to do, they think. And just to show, 
how low the ebb is in Israel at this moment. Look at verse 5. They meet the people of Gibeah and they just weep aloud in grief at this disaster. This is awful. Then Saul appears and inquires, verse 5, then the Spirit of God inspires holy rage and fury in him. In verse 7, he crafts a potent non-verbal message by cutting up a pair of oxen. Then he sends the messengers of, uh, of Jabesh out again with an accompanying verbal message to Israel. And God is at work. The terror of the Lord falls on the people. Whose terror? The terror of Yahweh, of the Lord. Verse 7. They come out in phenomenal numbers. The men of Jabesh return to their people with a message of good news. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. Verse 9. Understandably, there's rejoicing in Jabesh. Verse 9. Nine verses earlier. Think of the state. There is um, some had doubted Saul's ability. Now the whole people are brimming with confidence. <laughs> They're all buoyed up now. Um, by the time the sun is, uh, is hot tomorrow, we are told Jabesh and its people will be delivered. Gone is the old despondency. Look at verse 10. The Hebrew, let me read to you what the Hebrew literally says. It says this. Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good in your eyes. Now, we already know what's good in the Ammonites' eyes, don't we? Do you remember? The intention was to do what is good in their eyes tomorrow by taking out the right eyes of, the Israelite, of every Israelite. So the Ammonites would be brimming with confidence when they hear this, this response, wouldn't they? They think, we've got it, we're there. Tomorrow they'll accomplish their goal. They, they will be lord and master over all of Israel. Israel will be total, totally humiliated. Now turn to the final few verses. We hear of the results, verses 11 and following. Before daybreak, the army of Israel strikes. Verse 11, the battle rages until the sun shines hot overhead. Verse 11, the confident Ammonites are scattered and humiliated themselves. And then in the final few verses, the people come to Samuel and ask him a question. Verse 12, but notice it's not Samuel who answers the question, it's Saul. The man who had to be dug out of the baggage a chapter earlier is now a man answering. Full of diplomacy, he acts the part of a wise ruler in a position of strength. He also ascribes victory to the proper person. This is the Lord's victory and all glory should go to him alone. So the people go to Gilgal, verse 19. They reaffirm or confirm the kingship in the presence of the Lord. Despondency is re replaced by celebration and rejoicing. For God is amongst his people and for his people. The Lord has raised up for his people a mighty deliverer. There we go. There's the story. Now what I want to do now 
is to draw together some of the patterns we have seen here and show their significance because it's quite profound. First, remember Saul is the first king of Israel, the first king. So it's important that we hear what God tells us about how he goes about searching for and appointing a king. Okay? Think about it. Who makes the choice about king? God does. We're told that in verses 16, 9, 16 and 10, 24. Two, God involves a prophet by bringing the king to the prophet to be anointed. We're told that in verses 9, 16, oh, sorry, we're told that in uh, verses 9, 16 and 10, 1. Third, God's king is endowed and empowered by God's spirit. We see that in a number of places in chapters 10 and 11. And fourth and finally, God's king is publicly affirmed in mighty acts. Can you see, we see that in 1 Samuel 11. Can, can you hear the pattern? Divine choice, anointing, empowering by the spirit, publicly performing mighty acts of deliverance. Now as you look through scripture, you see that pattern repeated. And so when it is, you think, oh, I remember 1 Samuel. Think of King David. He is chosen by God in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He's anointed by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He's endowed with the Spirit in 1 Samuel 16 verse 13 and the Spirit is taken off Saul in 1 Samuel 16 verse 14. And David then performs mighty acts of deliverance in 1 Samuel 17 against Goliath. Can you hear? It's the new king. Hear the pattern, divine choice, anointing, empowering by the spirit and public acts of deliverance. However, let me tell you that neither Saul nor David ever finally lived up to expectations. No. This chapter is the highlight of Saul's kingship. It goes downhill from here. But things go rapidly downhill. And when David finally receives the kingship, he abuses it as well. He too takes, 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 remember? God promises him an eternal kingship in 2 Samuel 7 and the rest of 2 Samuel tells us that he fails to exercise that kingship properly. He does not fulfil the sorts of requirements of kingship that were outlined in Deuteronomy 17. And his descendants follow in his footsteps, but worse. And the catalogue of their shortcomings, if you want to read about it, is captured in 2 Kings 17 and it's awful. In other words, kingship fails in Israel. And God, as God has given hints in 1 Samuel 8, kingship never lives up fully, kings never live up fully to the expectations of the people or of God. Moreover, never again in the Old Testament, let me tell you, is that pattern, that fourfold pattern, never again in the Old Testament is it repeated. God never again goes through those four steps with any other Old Testament individual. Never again. But he does go through it with one person in the New Testament. 
in the New Testament we see God, God's chosen man. We see him brought to the prophet. We see him anointed. We see him filled with the Spirit. We see him perform mighty acts of deliverance for the people of God. We see Jesus, the true King of Israel, fulfilling what kings should do. Think about our passage for today. Do you remember the troublemakers back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 27? Do you remember? When they saw Saul anointed by Samuel the prophet, they asked a very, very good question. Can this guy save us? I love that's the, that's the Christian Standard Version translation. I, I reckon that's good. Can this guy save us? A very good question. And it's, it's a good question that could be addressed to all the kings of Israel. Can these guys save us? And the Old Testament itself replies, gives the, supplies the answer. It tells us that the kings of Israel may be able to save Israel from an occasional foreign army. But the problem is that in the long run, the kings of Israel turned out to be people of sin themselves. People of sin themselves, out of the same stuff as Adam. Tarred with the same brush as the people over whom they ruled. Descendants of Adam and Eve. They're people of self-interest, of self-serving. So they, but there's one descendant of David who is of no such ilk. A man of different calibre. Yes, yes, human, but a human without sin. And as a divine warrior, pure, holy, he wages war against the worst enemies of the people of God. The enemies of sin, the world, the flesh and the devil. And he wins. And he wins. Their fellow, this fellow Jesus won the greatest victory over the greatest of our enemies. And in doing so, he brought the greatest salvation. Jesus is the, is the right, only rightful king of all Israel. He is the only rightful king of all the earth. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. In 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel the people of God were despondent. They longed for a saviour, a hero. And they found great courage and joy in their very flawed hero. How much more, how much more, friends, can we turn to Jesus, the greatest hero, in our fear and despondency? Jesus is the one to whom we can look, the only one who can deliver us from sin, death and the devil. Here's a fellow who can save us, to use the language that's put there in Samuel. With that in mind, what I'd like to do now, just in the closing moments of this, uh, this sermon, is, is I'd, I'd like to now speak to those of you who are not yet Christian and the implications for you. So perhaps that's you here. Then I'd like to talk to those of you who are Christians. So first, if you're not yet Christian here tonight or today, let me tell you about the one we Christians call our Lord and our King. He is physically descended from this David here. 
He is physically descended from Adam and Eve. But he is very different spiritually. He did what we were unable to do. He was totally obedient to God as no human ever has been. And because of his obedience, he was able to take the sin of others who had not been obedient and bear it on a cross. He was able to confer forgiveness and access to God upon those who will believe in him, trust in him. He died in our place if we care to accept it. But there's even more. Even more. Since he became human and lived a human life, he is someone to whom we can go or look to in the vicissitudes of life. Someone who has experienced all the joy and all the pain of being human. We can look back, we can look to him in our despondency. We can turn to him in our frailty and our weakness as we face life itself. In our anxiety and our depression, we can call upon him. For we know in him we have one who can save us, one who cares for us one who knows our world, one who's experienced our world and its darkness. But let me now speak to those of you already Christians. Friends, today I urge you to listen to the words of Hebrews chapter 12. You see, as we feel in danger of being slowed down by the slow of despondency, Let's look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's not drift away because of hardship. Let's not sell out for something of much less value. Let's follow our hero, our saviour, Jesus Christ, into the battle. And let's do so with hands, with heads held high. Let's, uh, the results of the battle, you see, friends, have already been assured for us on the cross. God is for us. And this man, Jesus, is God's guarantee. He is God's true and eternal king, great David's greater son. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus, your King, our Saviour. Father, we pray that you'd help us look always to him. Father, thank you for his sacrifice for us. Thank you that we can be right with you through him. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.